dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, it's great being back after a week off. I wanted to let everyone know what I've been up to. During my little break, I decided to do some music. I mentioned in my first podcast that at one point, I wanted to be a composer of film scores. Out of all my dreams and ambitions, that was like the one that stayed with me the longest. It combined everything I loved about entertainment, writing, music, and film. When I was a freshman in college, I decided to take music theory classes. Now, at the time, you had to know all the aspects that make up a composition. And if you wanted to record music, you needed to rent out a studio for the afternoon. While I could read music, I had no idea how to write music. That was my ultimate downfall. There was too much math involved. For example... If a song was in 4-4 time, and I have an eighth note, three sixteenth notes, and a quarter note, how much time is left to fill the measure? Fractions are not my forte. I've dedicated my life to avoid maths at all costs. So I knew, at the time, that composition wasn't in my immediate future. But today, there is so much advancement in technology that you could easily write and record music in the comforts of your own home. All you need is a computer, a program like Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, or GarageBand, many of which are available for free with the purchase of a MIDI keyboard or on your phone, and you're ready to go. As someone who plays by ear, it's so much fun to just plug in, press record, and start playing. I actually want to shoot a short just to give me an excuse to compose the film score. So I wanted to list my top five favorite film composers. Number five is Thomas Newman. He wrote the scores for Finding Nemo, 1917, and The Shawshank Redemption. He's sometimes a little more ambient, and I just like the way his scores add to the emotion of the scenes. Number four is John Carpenter, known for Halloween, The Fog, They Live, Escape from New York. I like the fact that he keeps his scores fairly simplistic, and that's not an insult but he takes a theme on piano or, or keyboards and uses those synthesized sound to really enhance the, the tension and the terror of his movies. Number three is Jerry Goldsmith. He's done Alien, Gremlins, Star Trek, The Omen. Great composer. I am constantly humming the theme to Gremlins, but I always do it in like Peter Griffin's voice. I don't know why it amuses me so, but, but it just does. Number two is Alan Silvestri. He's done Back to the Future, Predator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. One of my favorite experiences was going to Radio City Music Hall to see Back to the Future with the score played by a live orchestra. It was a special 30th anniversary celebration. Thomas F. Wilson and Christopher Lloyd made a special appearance 
It was a great night, and hearing that iconic score played live as the images rolled by was just so memorable for me. Now, for those who know me, number one should not be a surprise. It is, of course, John Williams. I mean, Jurassic Park, Jaws, E.T., Indiana Jones, Superman, Home Alone, Star Wars, JFK, Harry Potter. Are you kidding me? This is an embarrassment of riches. If he were a pop star, he'd have as many number one hits as the Beatles. He has written more recognizable themes than any composer working in film. He just has this, this ability to understand a filmmaker's vision and enhance the scenes with his accompaniment. I do have to give honorable mentions to James Horner for Aliens and Braveheart, Alexander Desplat for The Tree of Life, James Newton Howard for Major League and Unbreakable, and of course, Danny Elfman, whose score is featured in this week's movie. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars, watch at your own risk. Three stars, standard fare. Four stars, worth checking out. Five stars, must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Midnight Run from 1988 about an accountant wanted for embezzlement who's being pursued by the mafia, the FBI, and bounty hunters. It was directed by Martin Brest, who also helmed Beverly Hills Cop, Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black, and Geely, which successfully ended his career. And it's unfortunate because that's a pretty good run of films. The screenplay was written by George Gallo. He scribed Wise Guys, Bad Boys, Double Take, and Middlemen. He was inspired to go into filmmaking after seeing Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. A great movie. I think. I've heard. Okay, I I've never seen it. I'll put it on the list. The movie starts off with the introduction of Jack Walsh. He used to be a Chicago police officer who now works as a bounty hunter. He's portrayed by one of America's greatest actors, Robert De Niro. Bob to his friends. Up to this point in his career, with a few exceptions like the King of Comedy, he's played complex and abrasive characters, so it's nice to see him cut loose. Bail bondsman Eddie Moscone hires Jack to go about capturing Jonathan the Duke Mardukas, who's currently on the run. He was working as an accountant for the Mafia and embezzled money from them. He was eventually arrested, and when Moscone put up bail, the Duke skipped out of town before he could repay the debt. Eddie Moscone is played by Joe Pantoliano, known for The Goonies, Memento, and Bad Boys. He also provided voiceover work for Godzilla the series. How did I miss that? What was I doing from 1998 to 2001? As a side note, I saw Godzilla vs. Kong on HBO Max. I was most impressed that a tentpole movie was actually under two hours. Can we continue this trend, Hollywood? Anyway, Moscone gives Walsh a deadline of Friday at midnight. This is a classic trope of screenplay writers. Give a time limit for the events to take place. It gives a sense of urgency to the story as the days count down. Walsh uses his contacts at the police department to get information on the whereabouts of the Duke. As he leaves the precinct, he's approached by FBI agent Alonzo Mosley, who gives a stern warning to stay away from Mardukas, as he wants him to testify against Jimmy Serrano, the mob boss he embezzled money from. Now, I screened Midnight Run about a month ago, and when Yafek Koto appeared as Agent Mosley, I was super excited. 
I was a huge fan of his from Alien and Live and Let Die. As I watched his performance, I'm like, this dude is an incredible actor. He should be in every movie. Then a week later, he passed away. It's a big loss to the acting community. He was such an incredible screen presence and made acting look so effortless. We need to talk about the bonus situation, because he deserved one. Jack Walsh gets another visit, this time by members of the Mafia who knew him from his days in Chicago. He was asked to cooperate with mob boss Jimmy Serrano a few years back, which he declined. They try to make a deal with him to hand over the Duke when he's apprehended, but Walsh refuses the offer. Eventually, Walsh finds Mardukas in New York City and arrests him. The character is portrayed by Charles Grodin, known for the Heartbreak Kid, Beethoven, and his best role, the Great Muppet Caper. Immediately, the audience gets a sense of his character. He's a bit neurotic and high-maintenance. The type of person Bugs Bunny would say, Ah, shut up, and slap him beside the head. Grodin plays him childlike, but there is an intelligence and reason to his character. When they board an airplane back to Los Angeles, he whines and complains about a fear of flying, has a panic attack. They end up disembarking. When they don't arrive on their expected flight, Eddie Moscone thinks they've gone AWOL and calls in the services of another bounty hunter, Marvin Doffler. As Walsh and Mardukas make their trek cross-country, they have to find creative ways to continue to give the slip to the fellow bounty hunter, the FBI, and the Mafia henchmen. Okay, this was a fun movie, as much of a road trip comedy as it was a buddy film. De Niro and Grodin have a good rapport. They're definitely an odd couple, but during the journey, they get to know each other, face some life and death situations, and end up finding common ground. They do play with a bit of moral ambiguity. Mardukas broke the law, but he was taking money from mobsters and donating it to charity. Well, at least some of it. As a person who upholds the law, Walsh had a black and white vision of right and wrong, which eventually turns to a shades of gray. What I liked about the script was that there was a logic to how Walsh and Mardukas continued to get tailed by their pursuers. You're never asking yourself, how did they find them? It was well thought out. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I like when actors play lines straight. There are too many comedies where the actors are aware that they're being funny. I think that approach loses the impact of how funny a joke could be. The dialogue between the two leads were lighthearted and fun. They had conversations about leaving tips, the hazards of smoking, and who lied first. I liked the direction and pace of the movie. There was a good balance between action set pieces and bits of dialogue. It never felt like the chase scenes or shootouts went too long, and I never got bored by the conversations. The cinematography by David Thorne captures the unique landscapes of California, Arizona, and Nevada, as well as the grittiness of New York and Chicago. The score was composed by Danny Elfman, known for his frequent collaborations with Tim Burton. He's worked on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and Scrooged before his breakthrough in 1989 with Batman. I've recently discovered the joys of Oingo Boingo, not a euphemism. Danny Elfman was the lead singer, which produced such hits as Just Another Day, Dead Man's Party, When the Lights Go Out, and Weird Science. The group disbanded in 1995 so he could focus on film scores. I think that was a good choice. Now, normally, I'm a fan of his scores. He has such a distinct style, but in this particular movie, he was creating blues-inspired music, which was hit or miss. Over the opening scene, the music felt a little too upbeat, but it worked best and felt most appropriate during the action sequences. Those pieces were spot on, and highlights include Mobocopter, The River, and Gears Spin. The runtime is two hours and six minutes. While it didn't necessarily drag in any places, this isn't the type of movie that needed to be over two hours. I know this is my biggest pet peeve with films, but there is nothing wrong with a solid one hour and 45 minute movie. 
It had a budget of $35 million and raked in $82 million at the box office. It was nominated for two Golden Globes in 1989. Ultimately, the movie comes down to cash only, identity fraud, fistophobia, planes, trains, and automobiles, wokeness, cul-de-sac, get to the chopper, litmus configuration, and airport security. I give it a solid 4 out of 5 stars. Add half a star if you enjoy Funny De Niro. If you've seen Midnight Run and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. There have been rumors circulating the internet recently that there was so much footage shot on the set of Mrs. Doubtfire that there are PG-13, R, and NC-17 versions of the film. Now, director Christopher Columbus has come out and confirmed that there is no NC-17 cut, but there was plenty of material from Robin Williams that was, um, unsuitable for a family film. It's not surprising. When you have an actor with that spitfire, spontaneous mind, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And that reminded me of a video where Robin Williams was doing a skit with Elmo for Sesame Street, and he had to start over because he made a joke about Madonna that probably wouldn't have gone over well with the parental demographic. I know that there's footage from the Disney archives of some outtakes from Aladdin which will never see the light of day. You never know what he was going to make the genie say. When Robin Williams appeared on Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton, his comedic abilities were on full display. I mean, he was given a shawl and went on a two-minute improvisational routine that never slowed. It was mentioned later that an audience member broke a rib from laughing so hard. I was also impressed with Robin Williams' ability to be dramatic. His roles in Goodwill Hunting, Dead Poet Society, and What Dreams May Come really showed his range. It's not always easy for someone labeled as a comedic actor to make that leap. I like when actors go against typecast. That's one of the reasons why Robert De Niro wanted to do Midnight Run. But his true wheelhouse was comedy. And what a legacy he left behind, right? Good Morning Vietnam, Cadillac Man, Toys, Nine Months, Jack, Father's Day. But my favorite has to be Mrs. Doubtfire. That is a put-your-remote-down movie. Now, I was on YouTube, and one of the suggestions was a video called Mrs. Doubtfire as a Horror Film. I had to watch it. It took scenes from the movie and cut a trailer, reimagining it as a horror movie. This is apparently a popular trend online, as I came across other videos of films altered into horrors, such as Forrest Gump, Toy Story, and The Princess Bride. It's not limited to horror, though. Ever wonder what The Shining would look like as a 90s sitcom? or Dumb and Dumber as an Oscar-worthy drama, but none of them do it as effectively as Mrs. Doubtfire. So I'll post that clip in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about La Femme Nikita. No, I'm not referring to the French film Nikita by Luc Besson, or the American remake Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda, or Nikita starring Maggie Q and Shane West. No, this is the highly rated series from the late 90s that aired on the USA Network. 
I always remembered seeing promos for this show and Silk Stockings during commercial breaks as I watched WWF Monday Night Raw. The series is about a homeless woman named Nikita who is accused of a murder she didn't commit and is recruited by a secret organization called Section 1, who sometimes uses questionable methods to fight terrorism. She is trained to be an elite assassin, but the core of her personality is kind-hearted and empathetic. This puts her at odds with the higher-ups who threaten to cancel her almost every other episode. This struggle is the main theme throughout the show. Model and actress Peter Wilson was perfectly cast for this role. She has an uncanny ability to appear vulnerable, but also adept at handling weapons and being a skilled fighter. That's not an easy feat. As a viewer, you're always on her side. She is the moral compass. Roy Dupree plays Michael, an operative in Section 1. He's more of a cold-blooded assassin, but he makes interesting character choices that keeps him from being a stereotype. He's a pretty complex character, though his breathy speech pattern does take a few episodes to get used to. The rest of their team is rounded out by Don Franks and Matthew Ferguson, who add levity to their missions. Alberta Watson and Eugene Robert Glazer are a formidable pair as the figureheads of Section 1. Most of the time, they keep their emotions in check, and that calmness can be a lot more intimidating than someone who's yelling and making a big deal out of things. The theme music was composed by Mark Snow, who famously wrote the scores for The X-Files, Millennium, Smallville, Blue Bloods, and most recently, The New Mutants. I really didn't need to mention this at all, but I'm a huge fan of his work. The series does feel a bit dated now. Many shows in the 90s had a habit of using that slow motion effect which pegs it to that decade. It's like shoulder pads. But despite that, it was a groundbreaking show and a precursor to strong female-led programs which would populate the airwaves in the aughts. The series was developed by Joel Cernow, who would go on to create 24 with Robert Cochran. La Femme Nikita was on for five seasons, 96 episodes, from 1997 to 2001. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, get out of here, you bum. But none of them do it as effectively as Mrs. Dart, as Mrs. Dartmouth. <laughs> or Nikita, starring Maggie, starring Maggie. <laughs> it was directed by Martin Brest, who also helmed Beverly Hills Cop, Scent of a Woman, Meet Me in St. Louis. That's not it. It's Meet Joe Black. But I'll just make up his filmography as I go along.